You know one thing, being a sound guy is not a glory position, that's for sure. <laughs> when things work, nobody notices. When they don't, you get that frantic feeling and it's tough to figure out what's causing stuff. All right, let's, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. That's where we're at. Stand with me for the honor for the reading of God's Word. All right, our text today is Matthew 6, 7 through 15, which says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's jump ahead now to the text that we're looking at. I'll just read it here. In verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We better pray. Father, we just ask for your blessing now as we look to this text. We ask again, Lord, that it would offend us in a right way, not in a wrong way. Help me not to add offense to it, but help us by the power of your Spirit to be humbled by this truth and to seek Christ above all things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to getting God's attention, humanity has tried numerous different methods and approaches throughout our history. For instance, many Indian tribes believe that they can get God's ear through special dances that will get God to send the rain. This involves trying to draw attention through special costumes, through special jewelry, shoes, hairstyles, and masks hoping that God will hear them and send his blessings. Other groups have slightly not quite so peaceable approaches in their efforts to get God's attention. For example, many cultures like the Incas and the Mayans, they would go so far as to sacrifice their own children trying to get God to take notice of them, which included even babies. And before you judge so harshly, I would remind you of our current culture not being very different. The god of hedonism is still a false god. Now, I won't go into details with these gruesome killings because they're quite nasty, but their goal was through this sacrifice that they would offer of their own sons and daughters to get God's attention and so that he might bless them. Now, instead of hurting others, there's other religions out there that have tried to get God's attention by hurting themselves, right? Inflicting pain upon themselves. In fact, some sects within Roman Catholicism practice what is something that is called self-flagellation, which is to beat or whip yourself on the back even to the point of bloodshed. And the goal is, like the others, to get God's attention. 
and get him to send his blessings. He's got the blessings. We need to get his attention. And if we do the right things, he'll send them. He'll pour them out. And the goal with this is to show God just how sorry you are for the sin that you've done, right? It's to discipline yourself and punish yourself for your sinful behavior. In fact, one group in the 13th century, they believed that they could get God to remove the plague that they were facing through their self-flagellating efforts. And this actually reminds me a lot of what we talked about, I think it was a week or two ago, I can't remember exactly, but with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. What did they do? They set up two altars, Elijah had one, Baal's prophets had one, and they you know, went around it praying and asking God to, asking their God Baal to send down fire and consume the altar. And as we know, Baal did not send fire to consume the altar because he paid no attention whatsoever to their self-flagellating efforts because Baal's not real for one. All right? So no fire came. However, with Elijah, Yahweh God, who is the one true God, did send fire and consume the altar. Now let me ask you, why did, that, why did God do that? Did Elijah have the secret sauce for getting God's attention and the prophet Baal did not? Is that what was going on there? No, says the church, right? That's not what happened, right? Elijah didn't do a special rain dance. Elijah didn't sacrifice one of his children. He didn't whip himself to the point of bloodshed to get God to send the rain, right? That's not how Yahweh works. Or is it? Does God care at all about self-flagellation with his followers? A little bit? None at all? Tiny bit? Does he take notice and delight in us when we inflict physical suffering upon ourselves? All right, before you say no, please explain to me verse, six of Ma- verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6. Turn with me in your Bibles there this morning. Look at verse 16. What are the first four words? And when you fast. You see the word if in that sentence anywhere. If you fast, here's how you ought to do it. No, it's not if, it's when, which implies when it's when, that's something we will do, right? And if you don't find that argument strong enough, look with me at Matthew 9, 14 through 15. I'll put it up here for us. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your, your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. There's no question here. For the followers of Jesus, fasting is always assumed. It's always assumed to be a part of the program of religious obedience and behavior. In fact, in the New Testament, we see one fast that was commanded by God. There's only one that was commanded by God. There was other ones that the people implemented. But on the Day of Atonement, this was a fast God commanded. And this was for the men, the women, and even the children. They would fast for that day. And we see fasting also in the early church. In the church of Antioch, when they sent out Paul and Barnabas, what did they do? They stopped, they prayed, and they fasted. And you see this all throughout the early church. You see them stopping and fasting when it came time to pray over important decisions. We also see it practiced all throughout church history. All right? It was a regular practice. And it's only been about the last five minutes of church history that this practice has kind of fallen away for us. Right? It's, it's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, it's in church history. So the question we have to ask then, if fasting is something that is all throughout the Bible, 
Why is it there? Is it a self-flagellating effort to get God's attention? Is that what it does? Well, we're going to get to that answer in just a minute, but before we do, we need to explain what fasting actually is. Fasting is the refraining from all food and drink other than water. Yes, you can take certain minerals and supplements that help keep your electrolytes up, but the point is you can't take anything during this time of any caloric value. That's breaking the fast. Breakfast, which we have every morning typically, is breaking a fast. That's why we call it breakfast. We fast overnight from dinner to breakfast, and we break the fast. So, for those of you who have ever done a fast before, and don't tell me a juice fast is a fast, that's not a fast, no more than having ice cream as a diet food, right? That's not fasting. Fasting in the Bible is to refrain from all sources of caloric intake for a period of time, sometimes a day, sometimes several days, sometimes a week, sometimes several weeks, all the way up to 30 to 40 days. And just in case you think that's impossible, I assure you, it is not impossible. In fact, one man, Angus Barbary, I think that's how you say his name, he holds the Guinness Book of World Records for completing, get this, this is a water fast, a 382-day water fast. He went that long without any caloric intake whatsoever. And see, here's how this works. So long as your body still has body fat on it, you will not starve to death from a water fast. That's how it works. Because that's what body fat is. It's fuel stored on the body that you then process as energy when you run out of food to eat. And then when that runs out, that's where you actually get into starvation mode because you don't have any body fat anymore. And so what does your body do? It starts eating your essential organs and then you die. That's a bad place. You don't want to get to that. All right, so that's what fasting is. All right, is that clear? We all get what it is? And if you want to learn more about longer fasts, we'll have to talk about that afterwards because we don't have time this morning. But back to our question. Why do followers of Jesus fast? Is it self-flagellation to get God's attention? Does inflicting pain upon our physical bodies somehow give us spiritual brownie points with God? Is he impressed? He's like, oh, look, look, they're real serious about their praying right now. We better answer that one. Is that what happens? Obviously, the answer here is assuredly no. That's not what fasting is about. Fasting doesn't work that way. And if we try to make it work that way, like many religions do, like Christianity is not the only religion that has engaged in fasting, okay? What does Jesus say about it if that's our approach to fasting? Look at verse 16. You have your reward. There you go. You've got your reward. So the question is, what is fasting? Biblically, fasting is this. Fasting is feasting. Seems a little upside down, doesn't it? Is this like crazy talk? What does that mean? Fast, well, We'll get there. Fasting is feasting, all right? But before I explain how fasting is actually spiritual feasting, we need to tackle two points first, okay? Because we need to know what fasting isn't before we can address what fasting is, biblically speaking, right? So let's get the first two out of the way. First off, fasting is feasting not upon the praise of man. That's clear in this text. Look at verse 16. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others. If you remember from several weeks back, we kind of looked at fasting just a little bit, but it was in light of Jesus' whole context of the three illustrations he gave us about doing our good things for the praise of man instead of praise of God. What were those three things? giving, 
prayer, and fasting. He says, if you do this for the applause of others, you've got your reward. Don't expect God to smile upon your behavior. And Jesus' point was that if you do these things to be seen by others and praised by them, not only will you not impress God whatsoever or, or anything like that, but you're going to be what? You're going to be a hypocrite. You're a fake. You're a phony. Why? Because here's how this works. If you give money because you want everybody else to see you as somebody who gives money, you're putting on a mask. You're not really giving out of right motive and right reason. You're giving to get, right? It's a selfish motive. You're trying to trick everyone around you with the mask of charitableness to get everyone to think that you're just a charitable guy. That's what's going on here. And that does not impress God at all. You have your reward, Jesus says. And the same thing goes for prayer and fasting. I can use my prayers not to worship and commune with God, but to show everyone that I'm the type of person who worships and communes with God. It's a massive difference. And that's the danger of religion here. I can do the right things for the wrong reasons. Right? Like that's depravity. Even our good deeds, apart from the grace of God, apart from salvation in Christ, even our good deeds are tainted by our sinful desires and sinful motives. And that's why the test of our faith is not what we do before others, but what we do privately before God. You want to know who you are? You want to see what you are at the core of your faith? Look at what is going on privately in your faith. Do you love Bible studies, but you don't really enjoy spending time in God's Word alone? Do you find yourself praying these elegant and lofty winded prayers at prayer meetings or with your family or at meals, but then when you go to God alone, you have mind blanks. You daydream. And all of a sudden you're like, oh man, 20 minutes went by and I only prayed for about 20 seconds. What happened here? When you fast, do you make it known to everyone every second how you feel because you love trumpeting it before them? And if so, Jesus warns, not only are you a self-absorbed hypocrite, but you have your reward. It's there. So don't expect anything from God. The harsh reality is, that, is this, that our hearts naturally sing a national anthem of the self. And we want everybody else to join in chorus with us. That's what we want. That's what our hearts desire. However, this is nothing but hypocritical mask wearing. For there is only one whose anthem we should sing. And 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells us, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so fasting is feasting, but it is not a means of feasting upon the praise of our fellow man. It's not to get everyone's attention and be like, look how religious I am. You know, it's not, it's not what it's about. Do you know why it is that we are so ridiculously obsessed with getting everyone's attention? Why we're so obsessed with our reputations? It's because of this. It's because our identity isn't fully rooted in Christ's identity. It's not. And that leads us to our second point on fasting. Fasting is feasting not upon man's praise, but secondly, nor is it upon receiving divine favor. All right? That's not what it's about. It's not upon man's praise, nor is it upon receiving divine favor. If I value because if I value my, if, if I find my value, there we go, if I find my value and worth in myself, 
I desperately want to protect myself from you all seeing my faults and failures. I don't want you to see those. Why? Because my reputation's on the line here. My identity's on the line here. And if I can convince all of you how great I am, maybe, just maybe, you know what I can do? Convince myself of it too. That's why we do this. And because I approach my identity and self-image this way with everybody else, it's only natural then that I approach God this way. I think that if I sin less and obey more, God will be impressed and he'll bless me. And then when I sin, what happens though is I start to worry that God is angry at me. And I had better start trying more, doing more good things, or I'm going to get his frown, not his smile. Or on the flip side, what happens is when I'm doing the good stuff, more good stuff than bad stuff, I start to think, wow, I'm kind of, kind of better than all these other people. Come on, guys, catch up. This isn't so hard. Get up here. Let's run. You know, like We get that kind of a mentality. But here's the thing. That is not a proper approach to God. Right? What do we see with the Lord's Prayer? How do we approach God? We approach Him as Father. Right? Which means we approach Him by grace. We don't approach Him as a vending machine who when we insert the right religious coins, out comes the commodities that give us blessing. That's not how we approach him, all right? And so whether we think we are inserting all of the right coins or we are frustrated and depressed because we're coming up short, both of these approaches to God are to approach him on the merit system, not the system of grace. And how can we only approach God? By grace. That's the only way that we can approach God. And to try to approach him by impressing him never works. It can't work. You can't impress God. You can't impress him at all. You can't manipulate him into giving you the things you want. That's not how this works. All you can do is fall on your face before him and sing as we did a moment ago, my soul finds rest in God alone, my rock and my salvation. And even though lips may bless and hearts may curse me, their lies like arrows pierce me. I'll fix my heart on righteousness and look to him who hears me. You see what that song is talking about. It's saying that when God is your rock, the troubles of this world don't rock you. They don't phase you. When you are completely satisfied in him alone, you don't need to go around showing everyone how smart you are because your smartness has no bearing upon your value and your worth. It's not your identity. Christ is your identity. And so you don't need to show everyone how smart you are. You don't need to go to God and try to impress him with how religious you are, right? That's not your motive for that. And why? Because as verse 3 of that song puts it, I've set my gaze on God alone and trust in him completely. With every day pour out my soul and he will prove his what? His mercy. Though life is but a fleeting breath, a sigh too brief to measure, my king has crushed the curse of death and I am his forever. Ever. Forever, church, is not a contingent factor. We don't have to keep him impressed or else we get divorced from him. That's not how it works. We have been ransomed. We have been healed. We have been restored. We have been forgiven. How? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, which purchased our adoption papers. And because God is now our Father and not simply our judge, We don't have to obsess over our pathetic little self-images. We don't have to freak out about it and 
try to improve it. Like it's a resume system. Like if we get the resume good enough and get that to God, then, then he'll give us the blessings, all right? And so then, it isn't the power of my prayers, fasting or giving, that allows me to approach God. It's one thing and one thing only. It's the power of Jesus' blood, which freed me from sin and allowed me to have those adoption papers, which were given to me by grace. Freely is how they came. And so when God is your father, you don't need to constantly try to gain his favor because you already have his favor. You think about it that way much? You have as much favor from God in Christ that you will ever get. God loves you just as much today as he's going to love you in eternity. Thought about that? It doesn't grow, right? It doesn't increase. It's not like you do more good things than bad things and then God really, you know, you become his favorite kid. That's not how it works. All of this favor that we have received from our Heavenly Father is the same favor that he has for Christ. It's true. The favor, the love that the Father has for the Son is given to us because we are in Christ by grace through faith. And fasting isn't going to unlock any more of it. Praying isn't going to unlock any more of it. Giving more is not going to unlock any more of God's love for you. Not even a single ounce. And so those two ways we just talked about are two ways that fasting is not feasting, and we need to avoid them. Which means that now we can finally answer the question, how is fasting feasting? Well, fasting is feasting. Third, it's feasting upon the splendor of God. That's what it is. Fasting is to feast. Fasting biblically and fasting rightly is to feast upon the splendor of God. As we've said, fasting doesn't make us more spiritual than other people. Fasting doesn't make God accept us or give us more favor or more love or whatever. It doesn't do that at all. What does fasting do? It is simply this. Fasting is a tool in our spiritual arsenal to help aid us in our pursuit of desiring the splendor of God. Say that one more time. Fasting is a tool in our arsenal for helping us in our pursuit of desiring the splendor of God. It helps us in our pursuit of trying to love God more fully because nobody here loves God as they ought yet. Someday in eternity we will. But right now, we've got all these distractions around us that prevent me from loving God as I ought, right? You all, am I the only one? Talk with me, church, yes? Yeah, okay. Wake up. Yeah, we all have some of that. We all struggle with that. And here's the thing about that. If you chase after God for simply what he gives you, you know what that makes you? It doesn't make you a lover of God or a follower of God. It makes you an idolater of God. Like it's, it's, trying, it's, it's approaching God like he's the genie in the lamp, right? I'll, you know, I'll do the right religious thing, rub the side of the lamp, out comes the genie, here's the three things I want, give them to me, all right? Instead, and this is very different, of a God who is worthy of our worship, a God who is supremely above all other things. Which means if you love God for what he gives you instead of for who he is, that's not love at all. That's lust. Which is the difference between a marriage and prostitution. And so if you come to God simply to get what he has, his blessings, his, you know, the things that he can bestow upon us, then you'll never actually get those blessings. However, if you come to God to get God, you know what the remarkable thing is? You get the blessings then too. 
Why is that? What is the source of all happiness and joy? That new car we want? That perfect dream job? The perfect dream house? Good health? Good family relationships? We have those. Will we finally have true joy and happiness and live happily ever after? Not at all. It's a lie. And why not? Because those things aren't the source of true happiness and joy. They're not. What is the true source of happiness and joy? God is. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Church, when we don't see the supreme value, splendor, and worth of God, you know what we are doing? We're in a fast, right? Not a fast from food, but we're in a fast from the one thing that can satiate our souls. That's God. And so when it comes to pursuing our love of God, fasting is a tool that can help us in that pursuit. All right, we haven't answered how yet, so let's do that. How? Several ways. Let's look at a few of these. We don't have time to get into all of them, but let's just look at a few. One, biblical fasting reveals idols of the heart. Two, it provides a training ground for mortifying the flesh. And three, it gives us opportunity to feast upon God's goodness. Let's look at that first one. We've used this word before, so most of you probably know what it is. What's the word hangry mean? It means you're so hungry, it's making you grumpy, making you irritable, right? You snap easy about stuff. It's like those Snickers commercials where it shows some you know, old lady who's all like, and then she eats the Snickers, and all of a sudden it's like some young actress or something, right? In our culture, we get hangry when we skip one meal, Right? I haven't had my breakfast, you know, with my coffee, you know, get out of here, kids, that kind of approach. But in our culture, then, we don't even think about skipping a meal, because if we go 10 minutes without eating, typically, we're ready to go Mike Tyson and chomp somebody's ear off, right? And why is that? Well, because I'm just so hungry, right? Like, I'm so hungry, it's making me grumpy. Are you sure about that? Because I have another theory. Might it be because food is a depravity mask that covers up the sin that lies within our hearts? It's a hard truth. See, when conditions are good, like I have a good night's sleep, I got a full belly, uh, work's been fine, it hasn't been stressful, I find something remarkable about myself. I'm a pretty nice person. Overall. <laughs> Why are you laughing, Lenny? <laughs> but you take a meal away from me, I get four hours of sleep instead of seven to eight, or work's been stressful, and you know what's crazy? All of a sudden, I find things about myself coming out that I'm not too proud of. I'm irritable. I snap easier at family and friends. Why? Because those conditions changing are messing with my idolatry. They're messing with the idols of my heart. What is an idol? 
An idol is anything we lean on, love, or desire more than God. Idolatry, then, is centering our happiness and joy upon the creation rather than the creator. That's what it is. It's not bowing down to some little statue we make. It's loving something more than God, to put it plainly. That can be work. That can be your spouse. That can be your kids. That can be your car. It can be anything. Any part of creation can be your God, your idol. A surefire way, then, you want, let's back up. Do you want to know what a really good idol detector is? Do it fast. You'll find out really, really quickly what's in the nature of your heart, what's deep down in the cellar of your heart. You take away the food offerings that you regularly give it, you're going to learn something about yourself. Do you disagree with me on this point? Well, then let me ask you. When Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, do you think he got hangry? No, he did not. Not even a little bit. Why not? Because in Jesus' fasting, he was feasting upon the splendor of God. You know, I've noticed something about American churches, American Christianity, and it's, it's this, and we're all this way. But if the preacher gets up and preaches against drunkenness or alcoholism or pornography, those idols, nobody bats an eye. Those are the things we should go after. Those are destroying society, right? And why is that? Because those are the respectable sins. Those aren't the respectable sins, sorry. Those aren't respectable sins. But let me ask you this. What is the primary sin behind being a drunk? Idolatry, right? You're looking to a bottle to find your joy and satisfaction instead of looking to God. For your joy and satisfaction. And my question then is, can't we do that with anything? Yes, we can. This is a really good Sunday because you're going to get two C.S. Lewis quotes this morning. C.S. Lewis, here's what he had to say. Here's another really good quote. <clears throat> he said, one great piece of mischief has been done by the modern restriction of the word temperance to the question of drink. It helps people forget that you can be just as intemperate about a lot of things, right? He's talking about drinking too much alcohol. He's talking about drunkenness here. That's what it means by intemperance. So he says, a man who makes his golf or his motor bicycle the center of his life, or a woman who devotes all her thoughts to clothes or bridge or to her dog is being just as intemperate as someone who gets drunk every evening. Of course, it does not show on the outside so easily. Bridge mania or golf mania Do not make you fall down in the middle of the road, but God is not deceived by externals. Lewis is spitting truth there, is he not? (laughs) Lewis is right. Intemperance in any area of our life is equally sin before God. It is equally idolatry before God. Is some idolatry more respectable than others? Is it? No, it's not. It's all sin before God. Yes, drunkenness is evil. Yes, pornography is a stain upon our culture that leaves deep and lasting effects upon marriages and families. But make no mistake, when any single desire we have becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol that we are serving and worshiping. And that too is a great evil stain that must be eradicated at all costs. 
Here's what Paul writes in Philippians about being consumed by our appetites. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes off those who walk according to the example. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, walk how? As enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, for their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set where? Not on heavenly things, on earthly things. When Paul says their end is destruction, for their God is their belly, what is he saying here? Is he simply saying that they are gluttons who eat too much food? That's certainly included in what he's speaking of, but no, he's actually getting at something much more deeper than that. He's pointing out that the heart of idolatry is a worship of the appetites. And that goes beyond food, does it not? It does. Have you all ever heard of the seven deadly sins before? What are they? Lust, gluttony, greed, laziness, wrath, envy, and pride. And in light of what Paul said here, I think we should rename them to the seven deadly appetites. What is lust but the appetite for sex gone to idolatrous levels? What is gluttony but the appetite for food twisted and gone into idolatrous levels? What is laziness but the appetite for rest and relaxation, which are good things given by God? God rested on the seventh day. It's not a bad thing, but it goes to an idolatrous level. You get the idea here. And so it doesn't matter what it is. We must not pursue any of our appetites to idolatrous levels. And so I'm sorry. I, as your pastor, I cannot sit here and cherry pick which idolatrous appetites to warn you of. I need to warn you about all of them because every one of them poses a massive and great threat. You know what the leading cause of death is in the United States? It's not COVID. You know what it is? Heart disease. One person dies every 36 seconds in the United States from cardiovascular disease. This is on the CDC's website I pulled this from. 655,000 Americans die from heart disease every single year. That's one in four deaths die from heart disease. And in total, heart disease costs the United States about $219 billion every single year. You want to talk to me about a pandemic? Let's do it and maybe consider mandating vegetables. For being overweight or obese is one of the main contributions to this heart disease pandemic that we face. It's my body, it's my choice, preacher. It's my decision. Really? Is it? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In offering a stark warning, Proverbs 23.2 says this, Put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Proverbs 23.20 says this, Do not carouse with drunkards or feast with gluttons. doesn't sound like drunkenness and gluttony are any different in God's eyes here, does it? Another thing, the health benefits of fasting happen to be ridiculously ignored in our constantly eat culture, which is sad because I was talking to a good friend of mine, Dave Leposky, he's a doctor, and he was talking about this yesterday about fasting because I wanted to make sure I didn't get any of my medical information incorrect. 
And we were talking about how fasting has such positive health benefits that every culture has basically known since Adam and Eve in the garden. But as a nation, instead of dealing with our unconstrained and uncontrolled appetites, we cover up the problem. How do we do that? Typically, in the West, here's what we do. Medication and self-justifying excuses because we don't want to deal with the unrestrained appetites that we are not controlling. And for the record, can I just say, you don't have to be overweight to be a glutton, do you? You can be a skinny glutton. You absolutely can. Usually you have to win the genetic lottery to have that. But if you turn to pizza and ice cream every time you get stressed at 10 o'clock at night to eat your worries away, to drown your sorrows in a bowl of delicious ice cream, is, is that not gluttony? It is. Look, food is a good thing. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy it. We absolutely, it's right to enjoy it. It's, one, it's a part of God's creation. But when food, and this is the big point here, food or anything, including food, when anything, including food, becomes not just a good thing, but an ultimate thing for us that we look to to find our comfort, to find our satisfaction, to find our joy, that's idolatry. It's sin. And as God warned Cain, Sin's desire is for you. You must rule over it, and so too must we. Secondly, biblical fasting provides a training ground for mortifying the flesh. I came across a good preacher, and I really liked how he put this. He was explaining how, he explained it like this. He said, if you cannot control your appetite for food through the discipline of fasting, he said, then I would about bet you money there are other appetites in your life that you also are not controlling. I think he's right, <laughs> right? Because they go together, right? If I can't control it here, usually there's other appetites that pop up and I just, I just follow them because the flesh is what's driving me, right? I'm not walking in the spirit, I'm walking in the flesh. And if you can't control your appetite for food, it really isn't all that surprising to find out that you aren't controlling your emotional appetite or your feelings, and they're ruling over you. They're determining your behavior. I don't feel like going and doing this good thing. I don't feel like obeying God in this way, so I'm not going to do it until I feel it, right? Is that a way Christians should be driven? No. Feelings are a good thing. Feelings come from God. But when our feelings control us, we are being driven by our appetites, and we ought not to be driven that way. If you can't control your appetite for sex, is it really all that surprising to find in your internet history things that would make you ashamed? No. Because all of these kinds of things are a failure to rule the flesh. And so here's the thing. One of the blessings of fasting is that it allows us to enter a safe training ground area to practice saying no to our flesh. I don't need that fourth cupcake, even though I want it. And sometimes I want the fifth one, right? But I don't need it, right? I want it. It's not like if I don't have it, I'll die or get sick or something. And so when my, I tell my flesh, no cupcakes today, what am I doing? I'm disciplining my body not to give it whatever it craves when it craves it. But if we learn to master our appetites whether it be food, drink, sex, you name the appetite. 
If we don't do that, we're in some serious trouble, are we not? Think about it. When that lustful thought hits your mind, what are you called to do as a follower of Christ? Resist it. When that anger towards somebody comes and you start thinking vengeful thoughts towards them, what are you called to do? Well, this is just the appetite of my heart. I just really want to slap them. (laughs) No, you resist it. And the more we succeed at successfully resisting the flesh temptation, the stronger and better we get at resisting it in the future. That's just how this works. That's how the spiritual disciplines operate. And yes, this all has to be by grace, okay? We have to walk in the Spirit of God, and that's how we are doing this. And so here's the thing. Fasting gives us a playground to practice mastering our flesh's desires without risk of great sin. See, if I'm fasting for 24 hours, and I make that 12 hours in, and then I eat because I'm just like, forget this, it's not happening today, did I sin? No, I didn't sin, right? But if I try the same thing with lust or vengeful anger and I give in, then I do sin every single time. And so do you see how this works? Through the discipline of fasting, I can train myself through the Spirit of God, through the grace of God, to resist the flesh's desire in a safe and manageable way. And it's only been the last five minutes of church history that we've forgotten this truth, right? Like this, if, I, if this was preached 200 years ago, everyone would have been like, yep, yeah, we know how that works. That makes sense. But today we're like, this, is cra- this guy's crazy, <laughs> you know? But it's not crazy. And so if fasting isn't a regular part of your life, I want to encourage you to give it a serious go. Now don't start out trying to go like two weeks or something like that. You're gonna, that that'll be a bad start. Start out small. Skip breakfast one day. Then maybe the next day, Next time you try it, skip breakfast and lunch. And here's the thing you'll find. Fasting is like training a muscle. The more you do it, the better you get at it. Right? You don't just go out and run a marathon one day. Nor do you go out and just be like, I'm going to be like Jesus and do a 40-day water fast. This is going to be great. No. It's going to be terrible for you. As we said before, and we have to make this clear now, because I don't want anyone walking away confused about this. Fasting doesn't give us any special divine favor. It's not steroids for your prayers, at least, not, at least not on God's receiving end. It may help us pray better and focus better, which it does. But what fasting does for us is it reveals the idols of the heart. It provides an opportunity to master our flesh. But thirdly, it also provides us with an opportunity to feast upon the goodness of God. How? a whole lot more we could say here, but we don't have time for it. But here's how fasting can help you feast upon God's goodness. First, it helps you recognize your complete and total dependence on God. Like, here's the reality. If the rains don't come, we're all dead. We're going to starve. In fact, God himself, Christ, upholds the creation by the word of his power. He holds our molecules together. And if he stopped that even for a moment, we'd be done. And so fasting provides for us then a powerful, grumbly-tumbly reminder, right, that we are dependent creatures. God is not a dependent creature. He does not need to eat. He has full sustenance in and of himself, but not us. And fasting and and feeling these grumbly-tumblies, you know, like that's a good, powerful reminder that God is our creator and sustainer. And another thing is it actually makes us appreciate God's gifts all that much more. I can tell you this, food never tastes better than when you are breaking a long fast. 
In fact, at that point, there's times where I would take salted shoe leather and I would eat it because at that point, it would taste like filet mignon. That's what happens. And so then you go and you're appreciating God's gifts all the more, right? It's like a kid, if you, if you have every gift you want, every toy you want, whenever you want it, you don't really appreciate those toys. Like the kid who, you know, gets one toy maybe for Christmas and his birthday or something. Same thing goes with fasting. It helps us do that. Third, fasting is feasting because it can free up my wallet to better serve God and my time, actually. Eating takes a lot of time. Do you realize that for every pound of body fat that we carry, that's not only roughly 3,500 calories to create it, but we have to then eat enough to sustain it. That's how that works, right? And it's not just a little bit of extra calories either. Like we have to eat more calories every single day to stay at maintenance, whatever our maintenance level is, right, to sustain that. And so if you think about it, that adds up to mucho dollars that we are spending upon our appetites. It's going toward our food bills and very likely eventually one day our medical bills. And that is going to, right, that, that's, we only have so many resources and if the resources are getting extra ones are be thrown into that, that affects my ability to serve and use those resources in other ways. And so this stuff matters. I'll say it again though, fasting doesn't make God love us anymore, but by God's grace, it can be a powerful tool to help reveal the idolatry in our heart that prevents us from loving God more. It's a powerful tool for that. If you've never tried it, try it. You'll see. And that's really what this is all about, isn't it? What we're after here this morning, church, is to love God supremely for who he is and not simply for what he gives us. To look at the things of this world and realize and see them grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In a moment, we're going to sing, we're going to pray and then sing the following words. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resist your holy war. For you have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. That's what we're after. We are after every rebel power within us every idol being defeated before his holy and righteous name. We aren't here this morning, like if anybody like is zoned out, like hear this point, please. We're not trying to shame anybody at all, right? Not at all. We're not trying to shame anybody or heap needless guilt upon them. That's not going to help you. That's, that's just spiritual pulpit abuse is what that is. And we're not after that this morning. But what we are after is seeing us all come to love God more deeply in a way that hallows his great name and supreme worth. And so may we be a church then that masters the desires of our flesh and controls our appetites, not because we get spiritual brownie points, but because we love and desire the glory of God. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Solo Deo Gloria, to the glory of God. Father, we thank you for this text, this hard text. Not, not a fun text, typically, but a challenging one for us all. Where it's not just about food, it's not just about drink, it's about every single idol that we might possibly erect in our hearts 
that we try to desperately center our happiness and identity on. And so, Father, help, help this text to show us that we can do that with food. We can do that with bridge. We can do that with our car. We can do it with anything. But help us to realize through the power of your Spirit that all of that is idolatry. All of that is to seek happiness apart from the one true source of happiness, and that's impossible. And so, Father, we ask that this text wouldn't be something that inflicts shame upon us, but that it would encourage us and motivate us to love you more deeply and supremely. That would encourage us to go to war against the passions of the flesh, which sin comes in and twists and perverts the good things that you've made into ultimate things in our heart that do not function as a God. They cannot. They don't have the power to hold up to your supreme worth and value. So we ask that by your grace that we would see that. Help us to kill our sin and help us to rest our identity fully in your grace. And we'll give you all the praise for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we sing our closing song together, O Great God.